Look at John, will ya? What's the matter, John, love? Blue meanies? Newer and bluer meanies have been sighted within the vicinity of this theatre. Oh, there's only one way to go out. How's that? Singing! One, two, three... Ah! One, two, three, four... Can I have a little more? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten... I love you! A, B, C, D... Can I bring my friend to tea? E, F, G, H, I, J, I love you. Boom, 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 boom. Sail the ship. Boom, boom, boom. Chop the tree. Boom, boom, boom. Skip the rope. Boom, boom, boom. Look at me. All together now. Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we will once again be kicking back with a big old bucket of popcorn with another one of our Macca-based film reviews. It's been a little while now since we've done one of these Filmic Side series episodes, mostly because of the timely releases of both The Bruce McMahon Show and Danny Boyle's Yesterday, but the main idea is that we've been chronologically been going through Macca's entire filmography, a.k.a. the films he actually appears in, and I've been giving you all my two cents. And since our last episode proper was on the ever-divisive The Magical Mystery Tour, it can only mean that it is time to explore the Beatles' 1968 hand-drawn animated epic, Yellow Submarine. Despite the fact that you always hear about how everyone saw this film growing up, and this is the greatest film to get children into the Beatles at a young age... For me, though, this was actually a film that, as a fan, it took me a few years to, to get into. In fact, it was actually the last of the official Beatle films that I actually saw. Though, you know, through osmosis, I was more or less familiar with the majority of the song clips, thanks to YouTube. Though, even when I did finally get around to grabbing a DVD copy for myself, it was viewed either on a, a tiny laptop screen or a teeny uni-dorm TV, which was hardly ideal. And that's probably why I never truly connected with the material on those initial watches. Like, I wasn't all that bowled over. Like, of course, the artwork was immediately very beautiful and very different and very mind-expanding. Though it wasn't till later on at university in my final year, uh, the Electric Cinema in Birmingham, which is also the oldest working cinema in the UK, ended up actually showing the film. I'm not sure whether it was part of a nationwide release or whether it was just something that they put on because they do specialise in certain boutique screenings. But yeah, I was actually lucky enough to catch it on the big screen. 
And the moment you see it projected up there on that giant screen, bigger than any home system will allow, and the iconic music comes blaring in through these huge surround sound speakers, you are just powerless to the magic that is unfolding in front of you. Like, right from the outset of this episode, folks, if you've only ever seen Yellow Submarine at home, or, heaven forbid, you haven't seen it at all, then... I can only recommend that you see this film on the big screen. It is the best way to experience Yellow Submarine. And yeah, I guess with the cinematic experience, you are kind of forced to take in stuff that you might not otherwise notice when you, you have a pause button. But seeing the film on the big screen suddenly made me feel like I'd been missing out on all the fun. And to this day, I can still remember the utter awe I felt as soon as Eleanor Rigby kicked in for the very first time. You know, that was when I think I got Yellow Submarine. Though, this is not actually the first time I have reviewed this particular film on a podcast. In December of 2016, I spoke about Yellow Submarine with my good friend and good friend of the show... Morris Bozitsky on his show, one of his many podcasts, the See Here Music and Film Podcast, which was a very special moment for me in my own podcasting career, as it was the first time that I was actually invited onto another podcast, and I had a blast listening back to it as research for this episode. You will be able to find a link for that episode down below. And let me tell you folks, it is a revealing window into how green I was at the time and how vulnerable I am when someone else isn't editing out every single one of my stutters and stammers. All of you will remember Morris from our London Town episode, of course. Please go back and check out that episode as well if you haven't already. But before we can board the Yellow Submarine, we do have the matter of the... Housekeeping... Of course, if you want to get in contact with the show, then please hit me up on paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always want to read out your unique and personable McCartney stories, and I always love reading out your correspondence on this show. And we actually have some more to read out for you just quickly today. And this wonderfully indulgent segment is becoming a little more regular now, so thank you everyone who emails and keeps emailing in. Please, folks, keep all of that coming. And our back and forth today is from Lou Dillonardo, and he's a regular on the Paul or Nothing Twitter page, slash at McCartney Pod. Shout out to Lou. And he says, Hey Sam, the Press to Play podcasts were great. They got me to listen to that album for the first time in a while. And even though I tended to agree a little more with Ken Michaels, I guess it's just because of the age difference thing. I am a lot older than you, and I do think it makes a difference. But it's not a bad thing, just different old ears, lol. Play me out, Denny. As always, Lou, thank you for that email there. I always appreciate anyone taking the time in to write into this show, and I'm so glad you've enjoyed the Press to Play episodes. Again, had a lot of positive responses there, and oh, my heart did flutter just a little bit when I read that you put Play Me Out, Denny. That's a nice little reference there. Thank you very much. And... Just going back to what you said about agreeing with Ken Michaels about those songs. To be honest, I, I think I mentioned this on, even on the part two of the Press to Play episodes. My opinions on those songs a couple of months on, you know, that part two with Ken was recorded several months back. I guess my opinions on songs like Angry and Stranglehold have softened somewhat and my overall outlook on Press to Play is much more positive. But 
you know, that could change again. Only time will tell. I'm always looking forward to talking about Press to Play at any point. If you've got any opinions on that album, again, drop me an email at paulmcconnypod at gmail.com. But Lou also emailed in again a few days later after the release of our Hey Grand Dude episode where I asked if anyone actually had read any of Hey Grand Dude to their own kids, grandkids or anyone else, whatever. And again, he replied with, I read this to my own grandchildren, ages two and four, and they both sat on every word. My four-year-old grandson has been a Beatle fan since he was one. He loves all things Beatles. He sings along and loves the Yellow Submarine movie. He and his sister are Beat Bugs fans. Check them out on Netflix. It's cute cartoons all based on disparate Beatles tunes. Cheers. Again, Lou, thank you for getting in touch so quickly. I'm, I'm chuffed to bits that Hey Grandude has seemingly hit the nail on the heads in terms of its target demographic with your grandkids there. And it's also pretty serendipitous that you would also mention Yellow Submarine in that email there, because that's what we're going to be talking about here today. But yeah, again, thank you so much for writing in there. The main point that you brought up there, though, that, that really sparked my interest was beat bugs. And I've done a few cursory clicks around beat bugs. And wow, we is that a topic for an entire bonus episode if I ever saw one? I mean, what the fuck is that show? Oh my god. I mean, we're going to talk about some trippy concepts in Yellow Submarine here today, but beat bugs. Yeah. Yes, folks, there is indeed a Netflix show for children where it's basically the Beatles cartoon, but with singing CGI children bugs instead. Yeah, this is indeed reality. Don't adjust your headsets, folks. Again, though, if you want to be like our friend Lou here, please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Like I always say, I want to know your Paul McCartney story, whatever that may be. And I'm sure you already know what I'm talking about. Or, failing that, please inform me about anything strange or weird like beat bugs. Please, if you've got anything like that, email in right away. Be sure to check out the blog for some bonus Paul or Nothing written content at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. You can see some bonus articles there. Find us on YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Pod at gmail.com. Still having a little bit of trouble with the Facebook page. Still haven't had any word back from Facebook about that, so I'm probably going to have to create a new page soon. One will probably have been created by the time we get to the next episode, so keep your ear to the ground for that one, folks. And finally, I, I also actually want to take another second to thank Lou, because not only has he given us that wonderful set of emails there, but he's also joined our Patreon Patreon, as all of you know by now, I am sure is the place for you to help support independent content creators like me. Lou, in the email, actually mentioned that he didn't have a lot to pledge right now. And of course, folks, none of you out there are pressured to give anything to this show. I simply put the Patreon out there and I ask you the same question that I'm sure many other podcasters out there ask you, you know, have you enjoyed the show? Do you enjoy all the work that I put into it? How many hours of content have you listened to? And if you put all of that into consideration, then hopefully a few of you out there will have decided that this show is worth a few dollars or two a month. But yeah, keep the show ad-free, help keep the lights on, all of that. Please consider becoming a patron, folks. Thank you very much. And with that out of the way, we can now tackle the Fab Four's fourth feature film. 
What is Yellow Submarine? At the end of 1967, there was an awful lot standing in the way of the Beatles' next cinematic feature. 65's Help had not been the same critical or commercial success as the previous film, A Hard Day's Night. The Beatles' own production, The Magical Mystery Tour, had been a critical disaster, and they had basically been turning down every script that was being tossed their way. The fact of the matter is, the Beatles were simply not at all interested in making another film. As a unit, they were hardly their strongest at this point, and the stresses of a full film production and learning lines and being on set would only have exacerbated the tensions within the band. However, the problem was that, despite the fact that making a film could well indeed break up the band, a film they would have to make, as a deal that Mr. Brian Epstein had signed with film company United Artists back in the autumn of 1963 meant that they were obligated to produce a total of three films. They'd done two, A Hard Day's Night and Help, but the idea of getting the Beatles of late 67 and 68, the same Beatles that were no longer touring, the same Beatles that were being independently influenced into meditation, and more or less doing their own thing, you know, to get them to sit down and learn lines and stand on their marks like good little boys, especially without the presence of Mr. Epstein, just wasn't going to happen in the same way at all, was it? I mean, the fact that after Yellow Submarine, we have a documentary instead of another narrative film only reinforces this point. So it's safe to say that the Beatles were both simultaneously looking to make a film and not make a film at the same time. Rather famously, none of the Beatles had much of anything to do with the project until the very end of it. Yeah, hardly the most compelling narrative, but outside of the music, the Beatles had so little to do with this film that they were not even voicing their own characters in it. Instead, the entire production was outsourced by the Beatles to Apple Films, King Features and TVC London Productions to the tune of somewhere between 250 and £1 million. Though the fact that the Beatles had so little initial faith in Yellow Submarine, to me, in hindsight, is one of the film's many triumphs. One of the main factors, though, that surely made the Beatles a little more than dubious about the whole thing is the fact that director George Dunning and producer Al Brodax were the same people who had produced the less-than-stellar Beatles cartoon series that had ran from 1965 to 1967. And for those of you who aren't aware, the Beatles did indeed have a cartoon show. Each episode had the Beatles in a different kooky, wacky situation and they would sing one of their many famous songs, sometimes sometimes very loosely related to the events on screen. Yet it wasn't exactly up to Beatle quality, and the Beatles themselves didn't exactly like it. But at least it was cartoon caricatures of the Fab Four themselves, and not singing insect CGI children things, so there is that. But yeah, this prior association with a non-Beatle quality Beatle product, along with their current disdain for any film project at all, meant that, yeah, the Beatles just kept their distance. 
Though I feel like this was a happy deal for them. If the film was good, which it was, then they could attach themselves to it all they wanted retroactively. And if it was crap, then they could keep that distance and speak about it to the public as something other. Now, regardless of my review, again, the fact that Yellow Submarine has indeed successfully entered the official Beatles canon alongside films like Help and A Hard Day's Night is an incredible accomplishment from an entirely outside team and that in itself is probably the highest honour that the film could ever have hoped for. The Beatles are Yellow Submarine and Yellow Submarine is the Beatles. So instead of the Fab Four, it should be pointed out that the true heroes of this story are the producers John Coates and Al Brodax, psychedelic wizard and visionary Heinz Edelman and his tireless motley crew of an art team who basically made the film for and out of nothing, the voice actors who we'll get onto later, the writers Lee Minoff, Jack Mendelson, Eric Siegel, as well as the uncredited Liverpudlian poet Roger McGough, and of course, finally, the director Brian Dunning. As the project finally started to come together though, after numerous rewrites and budgetary issues, that's when the Beatles actually finally saw what Heinz Edelman and the art department had been working on. Now, I'm not sure whether they saw the final film or dailies or what, but just like that, Equally, rather famously, they changed their tune and reversed their opinions on the film. This final endorsement from the Beatles themselves would come in the form of a short live-action clip at the end of the film where the Beatles essentially wave off the audience from the feature and count in another rendition of All Together Now. For me, the best thing about this short clip is the fact that the Beatles themselves being the constantly mercurial lot that they are, look nothing like their avatars in film form, and it just highlights how fast things moved for the Beatles at that time, you know, in, in the tight takes for them to produce and animate a feature film, they had already done this, done that, moved on to the next thing, and looked completely different. How Beatlesque. Unfortunately for the Beatles though, their plan of fulfilling their contract went a little awry as this last minute involvement in the film, totalling around one minute of screen time without them even voicing themselves in the film again, meant that the clever old lawyers at United Artists were successfully able to argue, rather justifiably really, that the Beatles had in fact not fulfilled their contractual obligations which sets off a series of events culminating in the original Let It Be documentary by Michael Lindsay Hogg that came out in 1970, aka our next episode of this side series. As we all know, Paul himself wrote, directed, pitched and generally all around helmed the Magical Mystery Tour film project, which befitted Paul's more active role within the band around 66-67, but rather oddly, with Yellow Submarine, even Paul is just as distant. I mean, it may be that Paul's overall dominance of the Magical Mystery Tour film and its resulting failure may have led him to want to stay out of this one, as it were. It's detailed both in Barry Miles' Many Years From Now and in Paul Dunoyer's Conversations with McCartney 
that Paul was equally sceptical as the rest of the Beatles, if not more so. I think more so than any of the other Beatles, Paul had a vision as to what he wanted an animated Beatle film to be, and he was disappointed in where the project was going from the start, stating that he was envisioning something a little more in the style of Walt Disney, as opposed to the contemporary psychedelic pop art style that was being developed. You know, there's that great quote where Paul is envisioning a less psychedelic world and more of an innocent dreamland with yellow submarines and blue submarines and red submarines. And yeah, those specific submarines do actually make a little brief cameo appearance during the opening credits, but that seems to be about all of Paul's input into the look and shape of the film. In terms of the impact on McCartney's career though, I think a pretty clear through line can be created. This is a project that set Paul off down the road towards creating his own animated feature film in the proper way. And of course by the proper way, I mean the way by which Paul wants it to be and makes it so. Now, with that in mind, we can thank Yellow Submarine for giving birth to the likes of The Bruce McMahon Show concert film and The Rupert the Bear and The Frog Chorus Short and maybe even the animated music videos for Linda McCartney's own Seaside Woman and The Oriental Nightfish. The Beatles were all at the UK premiere of Yellow Submarine, of course, well, sort of, as John was absent, leaving the other three Beatles to pose for pictures and conduct interviews alongside a cardboard cutout of John's cartoon self instead. It was also this night when Paul specifically mentions in an interview that they are no longer hanging around with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. The best thing about this premiere though is that a young teenage Beatle fan by the name of David Stark actually managed to get past security and blag his way into attending the premiere and meeting the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all of that. Essentially, he ended up sitting in Mick Jagger's seat as Mick Jagger was out of the country at the time and he watched the film next to Keith Richards. According to Stark, everyone was in jubilant spirits based on what they had just seen, you know, they all really enjoyed the film and he and his big balls of steel actually got away with it all. Rather notably, Paul's then girlfriend Jane Asher was not in attendance and it would not be long before she was quoted in the papers claiming that her relationship with Paul was indeed over. This, of course, meant that Paul was free to pursue any American photographers that he came across in the near future. Now, we're going to move on to the kind of facts and figures for this film. And first of all, the actual release schedule for Yellow Submarine is such a wonderful little window into the pre-blockbuster world before Jaws hit theatres with these cross-country thousand theatre release dates, you know. And instead, we have this really staggered, very protracted worldwide release over a period of not just months, but years. So, Yellow Submarine finally premiered in the UK on the 17th of July 1968, in the USA on the 13th of November 1968, in Japan on the 19th of July 1969, and it wouldn't be until 1970 that Poland, Spain, Portugal, Hungary or China would be able to go to Pepperland. In terms of profits and money making and all, and all of that jazz though, things are surprisingly vague when compared to the rest of the production notes. 
Now, anyone who knows Apple as a corporation and what it was like to work there at the time will know why this isn't all that surprising because money in that business model was seemingly difficult to pin down control or catalogue. So, yeah, this is probably partially down to secrecy with, and backtracking within the company, but a lot of it, I'm sure, is down to the rampant thievery and poor business practices that were just going on within Apple that mean the finances behind this film are much more harder to analyse than others. As I mentioned earlier, I have seen some sources quote this project as costing around £250,000, others saying, you know, up to and just over a million, and that's a pretty large disparity for a film's production, especially when you factor in, you know, you, you've generally got to double production costs for marketing and the fact that this film reportedly went over budget numerous times. But hey, at least this film wouldn't have to worry about the expensive licensing fees associated with Beatles songs. What's even stranger though is that I seemingly cannot find any data at all on how much money the film made during its original theatrical run. Yes, there are loads of staggered releases there and it, would, it might be quite hard to collate all of these figures from the late 60s and early 70s, but the only figures that pop up online and in texts seemingly are for some sort of re-release in 2018 as the totals show very detailed week-by-week -week takings for that and that adds up to around £1.2 million. But I struggle to believe that this is the official total and whilst I know that Yellow Submarine wasn't a smash hit, and you know, you've got to take inflation into account, 1.2 million pounds just seems like a bit of a paltry sum for such an iconic film. So this is my appeal. Hey, everybody out there, if you have any info at all about any of the finer financial details surrounding Yellow Submarine, then please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. A lot of you have been getting in contact really quickly, so I am looking forward to hearing from you very soon, because it really would be rather nice to know whether this film was an immediately obvious success for the band, or whether the good favour that's been curried upon it was one that was built up with its cult status and subsequent re-releases over the years. But anyway, what was the final film that they came up with? What is the story of Yellow Submarine? Hmm. Well, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because the plot of Yellow Submarine is... Well, it's, it's all over the place, isn't it? It's surrealist, it's symbolic, it's nightmarish, it's childlike, it's innocent, it's beautiful, it's ugly, and... Any attempt to recall the events of this film to the uninitiated comes across as just the ramblings of a complete and utter madman. Maybe the best way to explain it would be to just be as vague as possible and just drop people into the complete deep end, you know? Just say, well, duh, it's just the Beatles getting on the yellow submarine and having a magical adventure, obviously. Rather like Hey Grandu though, I think my best bet is just to read the blurb on the back of my own copy of the film, and just from scanning it now, I can honestly say that I think it might actually bother to go into more detail than the actual film itself does, so this really could be essential reading for all Yellow Submarine fans. It says, All aboard for the trip of your life. Once upon a time, or maybe twice, there was an unearthly paradise called Pepperland, a place where happiness and music reigned supreme. 
But all of that was threatened when the terrible Blue Meanies declared war and sent in their army, led by a menacing flying glove, to destroy all that was good. Enter John, Paul, George and Ringo to save the day. Armed with little more than their humour, songs and of course their yellow submarine, the Fab Four tackle through rough seas ahead in an effort to bring down the evil forces of Bluedom. Now that's a pretty good approximation of the events depicted in the film but I think it goes a little awry in making the Beatles look like real figures of agency within this story. Like, okay, they aren't going to be as passive as they are as help, but this isn't a driven script like A Hard Day's Night either. Like, the Beatles aren't here to strike down the head blue meanie or anything like that. And everything they do in the story has this wonderfully laissez-faire attitude to it, whereby it's as if the Beatles simply being there in the story and being the Beatles is all that Pepperland ever needed. And yeah, I am sure the DVD blurb has been spruced up in a bid to, you know, win the appeal of those on-the-fence people or people who might not necessarily be Beatle fans. But yeah, if you are a, a fan of conventional structured narratives with setups and payoffs and three-act structures, heroes' arcs or saving cats, then this really isn't going to be the film for you and I know that that was an obstacle for me in the first few times that I watched it and very much like many of the other things in The Beatle or Paul McCartney canon, you definitely need to adjust your headset and approach the material in the right way. The movie itself has a very lucid, dreamlike logic to it and being a guy who likes his sci-fi and fantasy to have a clearly established set of rules you know, this is always going to be one of those films that was going to require me to turn off my overly methodical, overthinking brain. <laughs> Don't get me wrong though, folks. We are, of course, going to get into all of that overly analytical stuff later on. But whilst experiencing this film, it's, it's hard to build a firm bedrock to build any interpretations upon. Like, it really is that subjective. Your senses are just bamboozled from start to finish whereby no matter where you are in the film, you can only really kind of describe what's currently going on, like the past is a haze, and you have no fucking idea what the future is going to be. And again, you're either going to find that really exciting and beguiling or not. Regardless though, it is a stunningly unique and enjoyably surrealist story, whereby you really can't rest upon any of your previous filmic laurels. Just sit back, relax, tune in, tune off, switch on, switch off, and explode. Just let the film happen. Anyway, now that you know everything you more or less need to know about Yellow Submarine, let's get on with the bit that you all came for. The review! And now on to the meat and potatoes of this episode, which is my own personal thoughts and review of Yellow Submarine, which... Unlike all of the other major Beatles films, my opinion on it has varied greatly over time and almost changes with each individual viewing. Going back to the first time I reviewed this film on the See Here podcast with my friend Morris and I was actually talking to him leading up to this episode and he said that he hoped I would go easier on this film and I was like, hmm, was I that 
harsh on Yellow Submarine to begin with. And listening back to that episode, which I recommend you do also, I don't know, I guess I was just in a very overly, overtly critical mood that day, because even the notes that I went in with that are still saved on my laptop weren't that negative. And in my head, I've always liked this movie to some degree, and yeah, it's not perfect, and it's dealing with over 50 years of ageing. But in spite of all of that, I have noticed that Yellow Submarine, like so much of Paul's songwriting, is a real grower. And lately, I've come to appreciate it more and more. But do not worry, folks. Do not fret. I have indeed come to my senses on this issue. And I can begin this review in confidence by saying that Yellow Submarine is not only one of my favourite Beatle films now, but it's also one of my favourite all-time animated films ever. I guess the phrase I would use to describe Yellow Submarine is frustratingly entertaining because like so many other iconic films such as The Wizard of Oz or The Shining or Jurassic Park or Mary Poppins, if this film comes on by chance during my day, I know that it is going to bring my day to a complete standstill until I have devoured the whole thing from start to finish. Which again makes me draw comparisons to A Hard Day's Night because that film also has the same kind of I have to drop everything I'm doing right now and watch this film kind of quality. And despite the fact that I do find it hard to take off my thinking cap during this film, shock horror, and you know, not worry about a million and one little things, I still never take my eyes off the screen and I'm never bored, I'm always entertained in one way or another, and most importantly, despite having watched the film several times now in preparation for this episode, it is still just as fresh, engaging, confusing, funny, and wholly unique as it was the first time I watched it. And the same certainly cannot be said for the likes of Help and The Magical Mystery Tour. Though I will say right now, at this early point in the review, I can definitely see myself popping on Yellow Submarine as my go-to casual Beatle film watch. And that's simply because it's the most fun of the bunch. Though you don't have to try very hard to be more fun than let it be. As a film, first and foremost, as a cinematic experience, Yellow Submarine is objectively fantabulous. So much so that this is definitely a film that you can truly recommend to non-Beatle fans. Like, they will appreciate this simply as a film first, as a story first, and hey, maybe they might just end up serendipitously liking the Beatles along the way. As with A Hard Day's Night, this film pleases both diehards and newcomers alike. Though this time it's not through peerless, innovative filmmaking, but instead through its sheer, wacky uniqueness. We're going to touch on the visuals of this film and some specific imagery later on, but again, at the top of this review, it cannot be reinforced enough that this film has an incomparable splendour to its look. For me, it's the most artistically dazzling animation on the big screen since Fantasia, it perfectly encapsulates that specific period of time in which it was made. You know, it's the perfect late 60s psychedelic movie. And you really just have to stand up and give credit where credit is due again to Heinz Edelman and his art team for making something that you cannot see 
anywhere else. I cannot stress to you that there is literally nothing like Yellow Submarine out there on the market and you owe it to yourself to watch it purely for the sake of expanding your own cinematic scope and if you're a Beatle fan and you haven't seen it, I don't know what you're doing listening to this episode. Go and watch it now and come back. Not sure what the odds of that being the case on this particular podcast, but it took me a while to see this one, and now that I have, not only am I a convert, but I am now its preacher. And now that I've already pretty much laid all of my cards on the table as far as a general review of this picture is concerned, I now wanted to instead go on a typical me digression and simply go through every specific detail that I wanted to talk about in terms of Yellow Submarine, but it'll still be all part of the same general review, just a little more detailed, perhaps unnecessarily so. The first thing I wanted to mention, and again, I remember bringing up this specific point on the See Here podcast with Morris, but it certainly bears repeating because I am not sure it is possible to thoroughly explain the utter insanity and craziness that is the opening scene of this movie in one single sitting. Yellow Submarine is so arthouse, so outside of Hollywood and Disney that you can really tell that there is a lack of any experienced showrunner types of this scale. You know, Al Brodax and Dunning had done the Beatles cartoon, but this is an entire picture. And someone a little more veteran might have straightened things out and made it a little more conventional. Thank God they didn't, but my God did this film boggle my very logical, cynical brain the first time I saw it. As an opening scene, it is somewhat functional. You know, we are introduced to Pepperland and Old Fred and the Mayor, the Blue Meanies and their conflict. But outside of the fantastic storytelling visuals, there is no attempt by the filmmakers to explain any of the details or the boring world-building plot hole filling in elements that bog down so many standard beginnings. Like, we have no idea where Pepperland is. Is it below the Earth? Another dimension or something? How is it both underwater and able to have a sky at the same time? How does Pepperland work? What do its people do besides play instruments? What is the economy of Pepperland? What is the currency? Who are the other leaders who established Pepperland? How are all of these places connected to the Sea of Time and the Sea of Monsters and the Sea of Holes and all of that? I need to know all of these things, folks. Even the opening narration is directly opposed to the thought of probably explaining to people like me what is going on, which is increasingly funnier the more I actually think about it. And instead, the omnipotent voiceover instead just hits you with the most comically vague descriptions. You know, it's like... Once upon a time, or maybe twice, which always makes me giggle. And it says that Pepperland is 80,000 leagues under the sea, which is 60,000 leagues more than the last movie you may have heard of. You know, that's all we get. The opening narration to the Lord of the Rings films, this is not. And you just got to go along with the fact that Pepperland is more of just a concept, more than a fully functioning, fleshed out universe. All you need to know is good, bright, colourful music and peace and love. 
And then we are introduced to all of the blue meanies and the head blue meanie and Max and all of that. And they conduct their assault upon Pepperland. First by using their anti-music missile, which of course is not a missile at all. And instead it's a very easy to animate bubble instead. And it engulfs the Beatles' own Pepperland doppelgangers, aka Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And it is after this moment that the opening scene just hits peak batshit crazy. Once the inhabitants of Pepperland see that this assault from the Blue Meanies has begun, naturally they scatter and flee. However, what someone with more experience in children's media might tell you is that it's not necessarily the situation that scares and frightens children, but how people, specifically adults, react to said situations. You know, if adults panic and scream, then that is really going to frighten children because, you know, mum and dad, adults, they're the people that are meant to keep calm and collected. But when the anti-music missile hits the Pepper Band and Pepperland is without brass band music for a millisecond, they freak the fuck out and the camera like does these harsh zoom-ins on their faces as they start screaming, sometimes like directly into the camera lens. Everyone just starts shrieking, throwing their arms up in the air and running around and crying. And it's really upsetting to me as a guy in his late 20s. So I can only imagine how small children might be handling this scene. Following on from that thought, even the action here is kind of disturbing if you think about it too much like I do. Like, obviously they weren't going to have the Blue Meanies straight up kill the inhabitants of Pepperland like orcs. Though the head Blue Meanie does threaten to later tear Jeremy Hillary Boob limb from limb. So instead, the animators had to obviously come up with uh, some sort of PG kid-friendly method of attack for the regular Blue Meanies. So... Rather like the Joker in the Batman animated series having that non-lethal but still terrifying Joker gas, uh, the Blue Meanies here have these guns and mortars and missiles that petrify the inhabitants of Pepperland and its surroundings instead, aka like it, it'll turn the people or a statue or a plant into stone and drain the world of any colour and music making the attack much more conceptual than violent, shall we say. But fuck, these blue meanies really aren't going for the soul, aren't they? How mean. Then we have the bit where old Fred tries to explain to the mayor that the blue meanies are coming, and we have the sequence where the mayor ignores Fred's cry for help, and his quartet are petrified one by one, down to a trio, a duet, and a solo! And I think I read somewhere at university that this scene is specifically meant to be addressing, like, the older generation from World War II. Like, perhaps even specifically Neville Chamberlain, who ignored the Nazis' increased attacks around Europe and Czechoslovakia and Poland and stuff like that. And appeasement, perhaps. I'm not sure. But the film here does establish that the old are incapable and listen to kind of stuffy orchestral music, and what Pepperland needs is some youthful rock and roll. Though the world building of Pepperland does get a little more complicated when the mayor actually declares that the Blue Meanies wouldn't dare attack Pepperland, meaning that this territory, meaning that this territory at least has two lands, meaning that the 
area that Pepperland exists in has at least one neighbour now, there are at least two lands in this universe, with the area that the Blue Meanies come from. And not only that, but there has clearly been a previous conflict or unease between these two factions. Like, there's so much in this film that a stick in the mud like me would love to have addressed and... You know, I'd love to restructure this into a much more formal three-act structure kind of thing. But, you know, all of these thoughts are part of the process and growing pains that is understanding this film and understanding how best to approach it. Like, yeah, I know none of this is remotely important to any of you, but I need to get it off my chest on my own podcast while I can. Speaking of the Blue Meanies, can we just take a second here to acknowledge how fucking terrifying the Blue Meanies are? I'm not sure about many of you out there, but I certainly was just shocked to the core by these creatures. I mean, they are collectively meant to represent all of the bad people in the world, but honestly, I think they went a little bit over the top with these guys. I mean, fuck me, these freaks are perfect embodiments of nightmares. Not only are their ranks partially composed of clowns, the scariest thing ever, but they are just the most ugly, misshapen, garish, menacing-looking bunch of ungroovy characters I've ever seen. They are always angry and brandish a sadistically diverse array of insane weaponry and even the presence of the Blue Meanies themselves in Pepperland after a while literally begins to twist and shape the very landscape from a luscious botanical paradise to this sea of thorns and thistles with no colour. Like, how could you not be terrified of these guys? Although I think most of this anxiety stems from the head Blue Meanie himself, whose voice is just the most blood-curdling, shrill shriek that I have ever come across. Some of this is down to the odd 1960s recording and mixing of the performance, but then again, he also just shouts and screams every line in the most horrifying way, again, sometimes directly into the camera, and he just looks so surreal with his long, thin ears and his moustache and his tall, kinky boots and his horrid, pointy teeth and all of that together makes him a thoroughly intimidating villain. Especially for a light-hearted children's Beatles animation. Also, being the villain and having the most screen time, the head Blue Meanie is afforded the most careful and detailed animation, which leads to some incredibly unsettling imagery. Like when the head Blue Meanie is talking straight into the camera, with this series of impossible grimaces and grins. The whole thing has like an increased frame rate effect, where he's almost out of sync with the universe around him and moving far too fast. It's like when Peter Jackson tried to show the Hobbit movies in 48 frames per second, when, as many of you will know, film is shown regularly in 24 frames per second, and it just creates this indescribably strange weird effect that is very off-putting and I know the crew behind Yellow Submarine did experiment with frame rates on this film in the animation because they detailed that Ringo's frame rate is slightly lower than, than the rest of the Beatles to give him his kind of loping iconic shuffle so I reckon I might be onto something with the head blue meanie here. For those of you not in the know, the blue meanies were apparently at the start of production meant to be red meanies but 
either they had simply run out of paint or some other production error occurred, so the story goes, with the red likely being a reference to the Cold War and Heinz Edelmann, the head of the art department, being born in Cold War Germany that at the time was split in two between East and West, communist and capitalist, would certainly have had strong views on this topic. Though the decision to take away such an obvious and overt reference is much more in keeping with the subjective nature of Yellow Submarine. Cold War allegories aside, why do the Blue Meanies actually want to invade and take over Pepperland in the first place? Is it just because they're a partial Nazi occupation allegory? Well, the only excuse we get from the Meanies themselves is the head Blue Meanie describing Pepperland as a tickle of joy on the blue belly of the universe. And judging by the way that they destroy and desaturate everything of beauty in Pepperland, I guess we can just assume that the Blue Meanies are just, as their namesake suggests, mean and hate all that is good and beautiful. Why? Again, doesn't matter. And this is mostly going to be down to your own interpretation as to why you think any bad people do anything in this world. Though, again, I suppose the Blue Meanies' lack of a specific goal outside of big evil does, again, reinforce the themes of the film. Like, it, it really wouldn't make sense if you know, the Blue Meanies were there trying to gain some valuable resource from Pepperland, you know? And just like Footloose, there is no cause easier to get behind than the oppression of rock and roll. Something I did notice about the design of the Blue Meanies this time around was their hands. Rather like Yogi Bear's collar that hides his neck so animators don't have to draw the neck turning and Mickey Mouse's permanently round ears, the bushy, fluffy, cloud-like shape of the Blue Meanies means that they only ever need to animate the head, the feet and the hands rather than any overly complicated arms and legs. Again, another practical design choice with an interesting artistic compromise. Though, on the other hand, they also have six fingers on each hand, which I assume must be a joke on the part of Heinz Edelman and his art team, because usually cartoonists tend to make things easier on themselves by drawing characters with four fingers on each hand. I guess the team in this case just wanted to make things more difficult for themselves. Although, before I move on, speaking of Mickey Mouse and Disney, is it any coincidence that that the majority of the regular meanies have two large circular black ears? Hmm, I think not. I mean, it's not so subtle, but it's a great little reference to the audience that, again, this is not a Disney movie that you are watching. But yeah, the blue meanies, they are probably the most famous non beatles specific image from the film that has wormed its way into pop culture. And whilst they give me the absolute willies, they are still kind of my favourite part of the movie that isn't actually a song. Now, let's get on to the voice actors in this picture. I think it's safe to assume that everyone was a little bit heartbroken when they found out that it wasn't going to be the Beatles voicing themselves in this picture. I mean, for me, it certainly was. Voicing themselves, though, would have been a new challenge that I reckon the Beatles would have absolutely nailed. And oh my god, what I would give for some footage of the Beatles recording their voiceover roles in an alternative universe for Yellow Submarine. Oh my gosh, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? 
But even this universe shows us that at least three of the Beatles were more than capable of doing voiceover roles from what we see in The Simpsons. And if you haven't seen our Lisa the Vegetarian episode, go back and check that out if you haven't already, as that was Paul's cameo. But yeah, anyway, Kesara Sara and all of that. What are we left with? Well, what we have in the final film are voice performances that just do not live up to any of my standards, and it's probably the greatest failing of the picture. I know it was a fairly low-budget affair, but the voices of the Beatles here not only fall short, but they're just patently wrong. Whilst researching this episode, I checked out the Beatles cartoon that Dunning and Brodax were involved in, and yeah, the voices are equally awful there. Like, I know this podcast is fraught with my own terrible impressions of the Fab Four, but it feels like they made no attempt, either in the cartoon or in the film, to hire actors that sounded anything like the fucking Beatles. Like, a lot of the mannerisms are partially there, but some of that could be down to the script. And honestly, at this point, I can say with full confidence that I would have preferred some easily recognisable caricatures of the Beatles' voices instead. For example, we needed Paul to sound like this. Then we needed George Harrison to talk like this, you know, all, all high-pitched. And then Ringo needed to be all the way down here. And, blah, 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 blah. and then John's going to be a bit more harsh than Liverpool and all of that. You know, of course, I can't do good impressions of the Beatles. But at least I, th I think I attempt to make all the voices stand out and sound different from each other. I mean, thank God the designs and the art for this film is so well realised and iconic. Because if I was unable to see the screen, I honestly don't know whether I would be able to guess who was talking. Maybe Ringo from time to time, because his voice is a bit lower down here. But the other three are particularly interchangeable and unrecognisable and I can't attach any of those voices to any of the real faces, and it bugs the hell out of me every time I watch it. And now I know this is kind of heretical and borderline insanity, but maybe you could even go back with a re-release and redub all of the Beatles' voices with professional impressionists slash actors? Okay, I can feel a bit of tension in the room, maybe not. But the animation is perfect, so... Maybe just update some of the things in the film that aren't so perfect like the voice track in the way that you may remaster a song or remaster a Beatle track any number of times. It's just some food for thought. Fortunately, in spite of the fact that the Beatles do not do the voice acting for this film, the voice actors who do play them do have some excellent material to work with and the script is packed to the brim with double entendres, puns, quips, jokes, in-jokes jokes I don't get, and jokes that don't even make any goddamn sense. Even 50 years on, Yellow Submarine, first and foremost, is sharply funny and offers a range of humour, not just in terms of age, but also in terms of complexity and, you know, what you want to read into things. Whilst the film may be lacking in plot, no line of dialogue or moment of screen time is wasted, which for me, as a cynical adult, means that I am uncharacteristically glued to the screen to ensure that I don't miss anything. I don't think any Beatles cinematic outings are particularly quotable in the modern, iconic, Goodfellas, Dark Knight, Pulp Fiction sort of way, but Yellow Submarine certainly comes the closest with lines like, 
It's all in the mind, you know. And senile delinquents entering my actual vocabulary in real life from time to time. Just another few of my favourite choice cuts from this film include The Glove Has Lost His Touch, which is screened by the head blue meanie once the flying glove is defeated. Four score and 32 bars ago, which is the mayor explaining the origins of the Yellow Submarine, which is a little parody of Abraham Lincoln. I jump in the river Mersey, but it looks like rain from Ringo. When they're looking for George, they ask what day it is, and they say it's Sitar Day. Great pun. They mention uh, a two-eyed Cyclops as a bicyclops, and the best place to read about Cyclops is being an encyclopedia. There's another great line from the head blue meanie that flies right past. That always stuck with me when, when, when he goes, Oh, I haven't laughed so much since Pompeii. Which again opens up a whole can of worm food in terms of world building there. There's a line when they say, We'll be sucked into oblivion or even further. You've got Jeremy's little catchphrase, which I, I always try to remember but never do, when he says, Ad hoc, ad lock and quid pro quo. So little time, so much to know. And a line I never thought that I would even conceive of until I heard of it, which is, Beatles, to battle, charge. Again, big shout out to Liverpudlian poet Roger McGough, who came in and made the words in the script sound actually Beatlesque, even if the voice actors didn't. And yeah, he went uncredited for that fantastic service. In terms of structure and plotting and narrative, the script does an admirable job of working around the fact that the songs were being animated first and that they didn't know what would be put where exactly and what might be dropped. And they were essentially just playing catch-up and placing the next bit of rail in front of the train whenever they could. Yes, the story certainly is, on one level, just a series of interconnected music videos, but at least it moves forward at such a pace and is so visually dazzling and throws so much content and concepts in your face constantly that you don't really have time to notice. Though, there is one scene that I just do not understand why it's in the film, and it's the one where Ringo introduces Fred to the Beatles, and he goes to John first, because of course he does. Though, rather oddly, we meet John in the form of Frankenstein's monster, who then drinks a potion, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde style, and morphs into John Lennon. I've never understood this moment or the symbolism behind it. Is it about Lennon constantly changing and his transformative nature? both as an artist and as a person? Is it just a random pop culture reference? Or is it saying something about how Lennon feels like a monster or how he's being hounded by the mob? Maybe it's about him being portrayed as a monster in the media? I don't know. And this ain't going to be the first time I'm going to be confused by John in this film either, because later on, not only is John seen to be leading Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and singing part of the lead song, but at the end of said song, the movie also implies that it is he, rather than Ringo, who is the one and only Billy Shears. God, this movie is weird. For eagle-eyed Easter egg hunters, though, Yellow Submarine is littered with thousands of references to a thousand things. Some of them were pretty obvious, like meeting Ringo in the middle of walking along the Mersey River in a direct homage to A Hard Day's Night, or King Kong himself 
being inside one of the magical rooms inside the Beatles' home, but there were a few obscure ones that made me smile. Like, there's this real throwaway joke where the Beatles fight over who's going to drive the car, but as many of you probably know, the Beatles did in real life constantly fight over who was going to drive a car, that they were going around in, like whoever was sitting behind the wheel or who had the keys, blah blah blah. There was a Rolling Stones flag that partially pops out of the Yellow Submarine at one point that I never noticed before. There are references in the dialogue to a host of Beatles lyrics such as Blackpool Lancashire from A Day in the Life being mentioned and even fixing a hole getting a, a little nod in the final live action stinger. But then there was just all of the stuff that I just know was going above my head during those first initial run-throughs. Now, of course, I understand that this is first and foremost an art film, and such projects are intentionally left open to any number of interpretations, which we similarly discussed with The Blue Meanies, but what I will say about this movie is that if it does have any intentional references or symbols to place, then I can guarantee you that not only will some of them be lost in the translation from page to screen or from screen to audience, but that also a large majority of the references that did land back in 1968 may now simply be too out of date or out of context to even appreciate anymore. I mean, it's sad to say, but it's almost like what Family Guy is going to be like in 50 years when pop culture again changes drastically. For example, you know in The Sea of Monsters when that cigar smoking monster comes on screen and then that classical bit of Bach music starts playing? Yeah, how many of you actually knew, without doing research, that that was a reference to Hamlet cigars and the specific adverts that were being run in the UK around that time? How many of you really recognised The Phantom, Mandrake the Magician and the UK series The Avengers popping up in the Beatles' house? How many of you knew that the little blue meanie, Max, might possibly be a reference to the 1966 film The Blue Max. How many of you knew that Jeremy Hillary Boob PhD was meant to be a parody of intellectuals and polymaths that were rampant across British high society and party culture in the 1960s, in particular theatre producer Jonathan Miller? Oh, you just thought Jeremy was a bit odd, did you? Well, no. How many of you really knew that? Come on. But all of you do now know, and my point is that, yes, it is liberating that Yellow Submarine works so well still and is so fresh 50 years on, but I'm also worried that there is simply another level of enjoyment and understanding of this film that I'm simply going to be unable to attain simply for the year of my birth. That being said, though, something I did appreciate in my latest few viewings of this film was just how surprisingly subversive it all was. Of course, all subversion must be subtle and open to possible reinterpretation, and this is no different, but there are certain images that just make you stop in dead in your tracks and think, hey, hang on a second. Now, I'm sure the team who made Yellow Submarine did not foresee the invention of home video and DVD and pause functions and all of that, but thankfully, we are in the age of DVD and streaming and we can press pause whenever we want and look at all of the details. First of all, there is a whole lot of finger pointing about who is and who isn't a blue meanie. 
You ever take a look at those tall men, blue meanies in the suits, who attack people by dropping green apples on top of their heads? <laughs> Talk about subtle. I mean, you shouldn't have to be Sigmund fucking Freud or Mark Lewison to work out the potential meanings behind that set of imagery. The Beatles, of course, around this time were working hard on their business empire, aptly named Apple, and had been battling businessmen in suits the entire time, and would continue to do so until their breakup, perhaps feeling bashed over the head by such practices and meetings. Then you have the hidden persuader blue meanies, who are the cigar-smoking men in suits drinking booze, though if you look in the martini glasses there is an eyeball rather than an olive, and their shtick is that they have these concealed hands holding guns in their shoes. Now, if some of you are still confused as to what this may mean, all I'll say is that the name might be a bit of a giveaway. Still, to see such a vehemently anti-establishment, anti-one percent, anti-rich white elite, anti-secret lobbyist corruption portrayed so openly on the screen, especially in a children's film, is so fucking rebellious and rock and roll. Like, yeah, it's great to see the Beatles call out such figures. Also, it's pretty cool that when the Beatles defeat them, they do so by closing their shoes and getting them to literally shoot themselves in the foot, which again is a lovely little double entendre, meaning to act in one's own interests, but in a self-destructive manner. Again, heaps of implications there. Not too sure what the Jack the Nippers or the Snapping Turks are meant to represent though, the Jack the Nippers being the ones with the kind of reptilian dinosaur hands, and the Snapping Turks being the slightly problematic, slightly stereotypical blue meanies that are in Turkish garb with giant monster mouths in their belly. Uh, again, not sure what they're meant to represent outside of being puns. If any of you have a clue, again, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to know any of your interpretations for this film. Another subversive image I only noticed on my last viewing was the rather disturbing image of a man stood upon a window ledge seemingly about to jump and commit suicide during the opening Eleanor Rigby sequence. It's a proper blink and you'll miss it moment, but it really helps to reinforce the grim bleakness of Liverpool and life itself that the sequence is trying to portray. Also, the fact that it is set to Eleanor Rigby, both in terms of its subject matter and instrumentation, makes it extra creepy. There's also that bit during the sequence where Ringo's being followed by the Yellow Submarine and he comes across this garish caricature of a London policeman, who's in Liverpool for some reason but don't ask why, who is hunched over on his hands and knees trying to persuade a, a literal cat to come over to him. However, his encouragement to the cat is just to continually say, Pussy, 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 over and over and over again. It is super strange. And even though it is more than likely just an excuse to have a policeman say pussy several times on camera, it's the policeman's creepy smile and ill-fitting voice that makes this into one of the most WTF scenes in the film. Also, if you don't believe me about the pussy thing, go and check out the particular spelling and syntax of the album John Lennon worked on with Harry Nilsson, the wonderfully titled Pussycats. Not Pussycats. And whilst there wouldn't be anything nearly as graphic, this would not be the only sexual reference in Yellow Submarine. 
And whilst there wasn't that much to work with, there were still several moments during the Lucy in the Sky with Diamond sequence where blobs of colours were placed where feminine nipples might be. Uh, Jeremy is called the boob several times. We encounter a couple of kinky boot beasts in the Sea of Monsters. And there's also that bit in the Beatles' house at the beginning when they look off camera into one of their magical doors and they all say things to, to the effect of, yes, they do look very nice, don't they? And it's pretty clear that they're watching a cheeky little striptease. Now, I'm not saying that this film needs to be recategorized in terms of its age appropriateness or anything like that. It's still more than child-friendly and it's one of the best ways to get children into the Beatles. But it is cool, for me at least, that you are able to appreciate this film on another level and see what they slip past the censors because it gives the film this 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 punk element whereby you feel they were able to get away with more than if they were with any of the major studios. Of course, no review of Yellow Submarine is complete without taking some time to talk about the artwork, but really what more can be said for the look of Yellow Submarine? It's classic, it's iconic and instantly recognisable. So much so that in secondary school or high school for one of my GCSE art projects, I did study the artwork for the film and its style. And at the time of recording, you should be able to go and see those photos on the Twitter. I'll be reposting them again shortly, um, you know, in that very vain way. But the important point is, is that I did this art project years before I ever actually saw the film. And yeah, it was partially just an excuse to draw the Beatles during lesson time. But my love for the look of this film goes all the way back to then. Because there is something about this film that just nails the look of what a Beatles cartoon could and should be. Every time I watch it, I'm just drooling over the artwork here. And the fact that it was all made painstakingly by hand, day in, day out, by a group of mostly amateurs, is both endlessly impressive and fascinating for me in equal measure. But it's not just one art style that is brilliant either. There's the whole variety of styles that will shift back and forth to something completely different to what you've just been absorbing, which as an audience member is incredibly exciting because normally you're just waiting for changes in the plot or in the script, but now you're on edge wondering if the entire look of the film could change at any second. Again, 50 years on, that is just so refreshing especially in an era of Pixar, DreamWorks and Illumination animated films that all look the fucking same all the fucking time. I know everyone's supposed to say that it is the Lucy in the Sky with Diamond sequence, that that is their favourite moment in the entire film, but for me, it has to be the strange photorealistic collage imagery featured in the Eleanor Rigby sequence that always stuck with me. For the most part, the plot and story stuff tends to take place in one generic style, so not to drive you totally mad, but when the songs kick in, aka the pieces that were done first, so therefore could be the most thought out and well animated, the film does truly begin to transcend itself, and you realise that this is, is truly what it's all about, it's not about the story. Though, that isn't to say the regular scenes aren't still full of the same amount of splendour and creativity. Though you can still see where the majority of time and man hours went into what sequence, especially when you look at the Hey Bulldog section that was ultimately deleted for American audiences, apparently for not being good enough. As I've mentioned time and time again, I always love working out why filmmakers have to make certain choices, be it artistic or financial, 
and it is incredibly fun to work out how they made Yellow Submarine and how they filled the runtime whilst you watch it. We know that there were several budgetary constraints and so there'll be inevitable shortcuts in the production like several sections of just pure black screen. Uh, filling up a minute of screen time with a, a numbered countdown or just different languages spellings of all together now or even obvious things like the fact that half the backgrounds in this thing are just blank empty whiteness. It's this DIY handmade element to the film that again not only reinforces that underground feeling but you just cannot help but be charmed by its rough edges, cut corners and strange decisions. Again, the constraints of the film are what led to these creative choices and seeing them put on the screen so effectively is so much fun for a nerd like me. There was also a remake for Yellow Submarine that was planned a few years ago and me being me, I knew I was going to mention it at least in passing. The remake was originally planned to be directed by Robert Zemeckis of Forrest Gump, Back to the Future and Polar Express fame and he's a director that's worked a lot with animation and motion capture and he was going to be working with Disney to produce it, the big head honchos, things were looking good, we had a lot of public hype and awareness around the project, you know, there were murmurs and rumblings, we had this good director, a big studio back in the, the, the animation who we knew could actually get the job done and an apparent voice talent including British actor Peter Serafinowicz to voice Paul McCartney, which would have been absolutely perfect. But then, Mars Needs Moms happened. Now, I don't think anyone actually remembers this animated children's film outside of this following piece of trivia, but Mars Needs Moms was an animated film directed by Zemeckis that bombed so massively and lost so many tens of millions at the box office that Disney was forced to pull the plug on the Yellow Submarine remake project. Though, sitting here now, this was probably for the best in some ways, as Disney was the rival that Yellow Submarine was lambasting and working so hard to be anything but during its production. And so to have a team like Disney on board with a remake of Yellow Submarine, along with the huge corporate spider web that goes along with Disney, would have only muddled the true counterculture spirit that makes Yellow Submarine what it was and still is. I mean, of course I would love to go and see another interpretation of the Yellow Submarine story in cinemas, perhaps with a little more restructuring and storytelling and plot and stuff like that, but for it to be produced by Disney would mean that any of those subversive elements that I enjoy would be quashed completely. Okay, 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 I'm really gonna have to bring this episode to a close here, everyone, because it's already spiraling out of control in terms of its length, because out of all of the Beatles films so far, this is the one that I have had the most to talk about. I mean, there's just so much to discuss here. I haven't even begun to discuss the four original slash not so original songs that the Beatles gave to this project, or the rest of the score by George Martin or any of the innumerable little side stories that exist alongside the Beatles' own narrative during the making of this film. But again, if I do, then we'll just be here forever and this has already gone on far too long for what was only meant to be just a little film review. I think I've made it pretty clear that I'm a disciple of Yellow Submarine and despite my initial misgivings about this film, misgivings that you can listen to on the See Here podcast, Yellow Submarine has now risen in my estimation significantly. 
and I am awfully distraught now as to what my second favourite Beatle film actually is. Is it A Hard Day's Night or is it now Yellow Submarine? It's hard to say. One is a straight up Beatle fan film that gives you everything you ever wanted and the other, Yellow Submarine, is a strange film that features and utilises the Beatles in a unique outsider way to give you something that you never knew you wanted. I'm not going to make any definitive choice here, but all I'm going to say is that I fucking love Yellow Submarine, everybody. If you haven't seen it already and you're listening to this podcast, I don't know what you're doing, go out there and check it out. Or if you already have seen it, go and watch it again because it really does hold up. It really is fun. Though, speaking of favourite and second favourite Beatle films, what is my favourite Beatle film? Well, it certainly isn't Help or The Magical Mystery Tour, so that can only mean one thing in true contrarian hipster fashion. Yes. Next episode on this side series, everyone, we will indeed be tackling my favourite of the original five Beatle films, which is, of course, the depressingly grim fly-on-the-wall documentary of the Get Back sessions, The Beatles... Let it be. Thank you all for listening to this film review episode, folks. I hope you all enjoyed that. I'm sorry this episode's taken a little bit longer to come out, but these are uncertain, dark times, as it were. Things have been a little bit erratic. I've got a lot planned for the future, including all of the regular side series, like some more Paul McCartney music videos, hot hits and cold cuts, and listen with Sam Redrose Speedway. But there's also some other topics I want to tackle, like... Return to Pepperland, the album that Paul worked on with Paul Ramone. That's really interested me. I haven't done a gig review in ages. We still need to tackle The Family Way, which really should have been the very first episode of this podcast. And then, of course, we will eventually get around to our Flowers in the Dirt episode. Part one being all of the context and part two being my conversation with a certain fan favourite guest on this show. Everyone, again... Email in your thoughts on Yellow Submarine or any trivia that I may have missed, anything I may have got wrong. And of course, your own Paul McCartney stories, your own unique takes on Paul. Perhaps you've met him. And it doesn't have to be anything as crazy as our correspondence last week, folks. I just love reading out anything to do with Paul that I could not get anywhere else. I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out, folks. Peace and love, peace and love. Keep listening to Paul. Wash your hands. Stay safe. Play us out, Denny.